Hi everybody, this is David. I wanted to let you know about our fireside chat. It's going to be a live event on Friday, January 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern. That's 5 p.m. Pacific. See the show notes for the event link through thewalledgarden.com. We're going to be talking about our plans for Season 3 and doing a question and answer session. Uh, bring any questions you have about Norse mythology. We're sorry about the short notice, but I hope you'll be able to attend. We'll be drinking from our Viking drinking horns, and you're welcome to bring a drink as well to celebrate our completion of Season 2 and our first year of the Between Two Ravens podcast. You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean, how's it going? David, I'm doing great. Thank you. How was your uh, New Year's? How was your holiday season? It was good. It was a nice holiday. I had a lot of time reading, thinking, you know, sort of just to uh, to reflect and contemplate. I think I talked a little bit about that in the, the Yule episode, and I think we had some fun episodes over the break. I actually had my interview with Simon released there as well, Simon Drew from The Walled Garden. Yeah, that's right. No, that was a good episode. And I definitely want to connect with Simon at some point for uh, some of the podcasts, whether it's on his podcast or ours. But uh, yeah. but no, that's awesome. Hey, what books did you read? So I'm still reading the Stoic ones and I'm still doing my meetups too. So every Saturday morning, I still have, I have two more left. The Disciplines of uh, Discipline of Desire and the Discipline of Action are the last two kind of like mindfulness practices of Stoic mindfulness. We just have real small little groups that show up very early morning on uh, Saturday. There's a very funny, uh, how do I explain it? One of the, one of the images from Marcus Aurelius in his meditations, he talks about how to not, how to not get too excited because you get yourself too excited and then you get too disappointed and you're angry at life for it not going the way you wanted it to go. So mm-hmm. his, his visual is this, you know, you're, you know, you're the emperor of Rome, right? You sit down to a nice meal and everyone's, you're supposed to be all excited about this fine food, but you're supposed to tell yourself, this is just the corpse of a dead bird. This is just the corpse of a dead fish rather than getting all excited about how uh, I can't, I can't live without my wonderful cuisine and things like that. So uh, that's an image when I had a rotisserie chicken, mostly the skeleton sitting in my fridge. It always makes me think of Marcus Aurelius now. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. And like, let's say hypothetically you're lost in the woods and you have to like eat a dead squirrel. You have to like kill a squirrel or something and eat it. You could also like just look at that bad situation and be like, oh, well, this is pretty much the same thing as a uh, Thanksgiving feast or yeah. the feast of emperors. So like, I, I think there's always like this um, way you want to approach life with this like balance where like you never want to be too excited, but you also never want to be too upset. You just kind of want to be like, oh, this is cool. This is life. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of just along for the ride and just like down this river that's taking me wherever it wants to go, you know? And that's what we discuss in the Wild Guard meetups is like, it's not necessarily that that needs to be your attitude for life all the time but that it's good to be able to do. It's a good practice. It's a good thing to be able to, um, to, to discipline your mind, essentially, is the idea of this, these uh, three weeks I've been doing in January. So, And then one other thing I did was um, I was on a, the uh, Therapy for Men podcast, this guy, uh, yeah. PK, who uh, I, I met him through kind of a, a stoic Facebook group. He's a guy that knows a lot of, you know, he's not formally trained Jungian, you know, like me. He's not, not official, <laughs> but he reads a lot of stuff. And as I mentioned books, you know, he, he's read all these books, either ones I have read or I haven't quite yet read. And uh, we just had a really nice conversation. Kind of on one of the topics at least was like mature masculinity and how a lot of young men are looking at stoicism as this way to, you know, toxic masculinity. Like I don't have any feelings. Feelings don't matter. I don't care about anybody's feelings and how, you know, you, you can take some stoicism that way, but that's really not how it's meant to be taken. And I think it's quite similar to some of the things we talk about here with the 
the Norse mythology, like where you can take it, you know, I'm just an individual and I don't care about anybody, but actually it's all really caring about your community. And mm-hmm. maybe the, the North, the, you know, the, the Vikings made that a small community. They don't really care about somebody else's community, but that's, it's not just uh, every man for himself. And it's like, I think like in the modern sense of like toxic masculinity, I feel like there's some people that use that as a means to like look down on others. Right. Like, or like say like that person's not a man. So like, they're not as good as me, but I feel like whatever masculinity. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm an alpha and everybody else is a beta and it's all these <laughs> yeah. absurd things. And, and then on the Facebook group, this where we connected because we were two of the sensible people that sort of uh, were making sensible comments there. Cause other people are like toxic masculinity doesn't exist. And it's like, I see where they're coming from in regards that if you think everyone's saying all masculinity is toxic, they don't like that idea, but is there a, yeah. a type of masculinity? You can do your masculinity in a certain toxic way. That's absolutely possible. So. And I think the way to look at it is like, if you, if you enjoy doing something and you're not harming others, like, and you have confidence doing it, you know, like that's almost like what people say masculinity is, but like anybody can have those, anybody can have that confidence, right? Like, it's there's like, again, there's like this whole balance, just like how you want to live your life. Like you and I, we are confident in what we like and we're running a fucking podcast on it where somebody else may be like, these guys are fucking idiots. They're losers. They have a, po- a podcast on Norse mythology, but I kind of yeah. like it. I mean, Oh yeah. So I don't know. And the, the, the thing that, uh, sort of the, the Jungian analysis piece of all this conversation on toxic masculinity is saying that the real problem is insecure masculinity. So that's kind of can be one of the problems when you're sort of shooting down masculinity all the time. That actually you need to figure out what is mature and secure masculinity actually look like. So you're not in this insecure state where you're constantly grasping and trying to prove how alpha you are and everything else, right? You can sure a podcast and if other people don't like it, you don't have to fight with them and argue. It's just like that's okay, <laughs> sure you don't like it. It's it's a weird podcast. I'm I'm completely on board with that. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, I think the insecurity come, like, I, I think if you are somebody that just like looks down on others, and by the way, like, I think this is something that we all fall into. Like if we, if like, like me, I have a problem with sometimes looking at social media and like following pol- political things I shouldn't be following. And then I'll be like, oh, that person's stupid. I'm better than that person. And like, that's like an insecurity of mine coming out, even if it's true. Um, and the whole idea, this is a little bit, I think me and Kike discussed it and it's a, the writings by Robert Moore, who I, I brought in, you know, the, the King warrior, magician lover, those archetypes I'm always bringing into the podcast. Yeah. Is he really talk, he's not saying, you know, like I'm a secure man and what's wrong with all you other people who are insecure. It's like, no, everyone is struggling with their insecure masculinity. The, the, the other book I just started reading that I haven't quite finished is a uh, Robert Bly who started a, mm-hmm. a certain type of men's movement. That was like a, the, the organization is called the mankind project. And it's about how to build kind men, men who are strong, but also kind and rediscovering what, what it's supposed to be to be a man, because after the Industrial Revolution, let alone how many men died in World War II, let alone how many men came back wounded from World War II, and then again for Vietnam, and all of these things, we, we've lost all these men, these messages of masculinity. You know, it used to be you learn farming from your dad, and that was a pretty good indicator, right? It's kind of like the question, what is it to be a good dad? What does that even look like? Right? Do people know that anymore? Or has it really been kind of lost in everybody's uh, yeah. And it's like also reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. And like the idea of a good dad obviously evolves over time. Like somebody that has a lot of money that happens to be a father is going to be able to provide what somebody like a million, like 10,000 years ago would have been able, wanted to provide for their kid. And so it obviously, and like, whereas 10,000 years ago, it was somebody that could like beat up a tiger and kill it. Yeah. So I don't know. No. And I'll, 
I'll leave it there because I'll come back to it at the end because uh, I'm also watching the movie. Uh, yeah, Sean, you'll be, you'll be proud of me. I'm watching some movies and catching up on my movies. I'm watching. Uh, Are you finally getting uh, into the Marvel series? No, I'm watching uh, King David from 1997. <laughs> but oh, great. You're, you've got 25 years to catch up. Nice job. It's, David. Got, it's, got, it's got Leonard Nimoy as the, uh, as the prophet and visionary. So it was very, I like that guy. Cool. Yeah. It's a very good movie, <laughs> but um, it'll, it'll tie back into my, my closing thoughts. Maybe if I can remember them at the end of the episode, Yeah, John, how awesome. was your, how was your break? Uh, it was fine. Like we were, I was off for like a week and a half and uh, a lot of my week was uh, negatively. If, well, I guess during those 10 days I had, really severely strains my neck. Um, I got way too aggressive with like my hit workouts and I was like, I'm going to get back into it a month early before new year's. And I'm going to be so cool. Cause I'm doing my new year's resolution first or like a month early and I didn't stretch. And I, my mind thinks I'm 25, but my body knows I'm 35 and I strained my neck. And then my in-laws came over and they stayed at our place for like four days. And then it ended up being four days of me consuming a lot of alcohol and a lot of food. Sounds like a, <laughs> sounds like a holiday. Sounds like a holiday <laughs> celebration. Yeah. But Beth and I picked up tennis, so we Speaking, did something. And that's a, that's a great new year's, uh, new year's plan playing tennis. But as you're, as you're uh, discussing drinking too much, we have our Viking drinking horns and we're planning the fireside chat. I, I wish we had a, a definite answer, but you know, we were never prepared that that maybe it'll be on January 20th. But maybe we're actually going to wait until me and Sean see each other in person a little bit after that. So that's we're why we can't decide. But certainly follow us on Twitter, and we will be giving at least a few days' notice before, uh, or ideally, like we can give a week's notice before the fireside chat. But we're we're figuring it all out. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think any of our fans are going to be surprised that we're very unorganized. Yeah. But hopefully, you can um, make it. We would love to meet you and talk to you and, and ask us all the questions you want if you make it to the fireside chat. Yeah. And uh, real quick, before we get into the uh, the episode, one thing I did want to say, and this is something Dave and I talked about a little bit, and this is not going to be a set in stone forever, but, uh, you know, we've been doing this for, well, I can't believe this. It's been like 13, almost 14 months since we started this podcast. And we've been doing it every single week. Every single week, we had an episode up until the first week of January, where we finally took a break. And I will say like at the end of season one, where we were going hard until like the end of uh, June, I want to say, and then the end of season two, where we went well into mid December of last year, it, it like by the end of those periods, it started to get a little rough. So for season three, which is this episode, um, in probably the first half of this year, we might cut it back to like one an episode every other week, unless we had like a solo episode that we wanted to record and publish or something like that. But uh, I don't think it's going to be fifty episodes this year. It might be a little bit less than that. It's probably going to be more than twenty six, but. Uh, you know, I, I have my own uh, ambitions for 2023. I do want to learn how to code and, uh, you know, maybe um, develop the skills like along with my MBA that I got a few years ago to like make a career change maybe. So uh, I think we're also going to, I also like to read a little bit more, but that's something that um, I'm going to focus on alongside the podcast. Uh, David, that, do you have anything? Or? No, yeah, that, that practically to prepare for some of the stuff around like sagas and that I really want to do something meaningful and a little more prepared on kind of hero's journey and sagas. That, that takes a lot more time to prepare reading it. And how do you break it down? We've done, you know, the, the poetic edit and the prose edit are a lot of nice little chapters that are easy to make an episode. But, um, and then also like kind of giving me time maybe to do some interviews, you know, on this podcast yeah. or for different podcasts um, as, you, as you take the time for coding, which is, which is really uh, excellent that I might actually, I've kind of wanted to do a solo podcast on psychology stuff. So I might actually make a little more progress towards that. Um, so I think it'll be, 
a good thing. And it lets us keep doing this thing for much longer if we're uh, spacing ourselves out every other week. So that's the plan. I mean, after, after Ragnarok, most of the actual North stories are almost done, but I like, we're not going away. Like, uh, there's a lot more that I want to personally dissect. And I do think, uh, there's a few avenues I want to go. Like, I definitely want to start interviewing people that maybe have, um, like knowledge that I'd like to have, like maybe we'll have like some uh, doctor, like or professors on to speak about their expertise. But uh, after Ragnarok, there's a few um, other stories I do want to get into. And I definitely want to get into the saga of the Volsungs, the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, and then eventually the saga of the Icelander. So we, we have plenty to do. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a fun ride. And then I'd also be really interested to hear from fans. What are their thoughts about me bringing in more world mythologies? It's not to make it, you know, between two Ravens, the every kind of mythology podcast doing that first year of us, you know, spending every single week thinking about Norse mythology that I really do like think of the Norse, the, the gods and the pantheons when I notice characters in every other mythology, right. When they're reading something, talking about Mercury or talking about uh, looking at Celtic gods and things like that. I'm like, Oh, that guy sounds like Odin, right. That guy sounds like this It all. For me, it always comes back to this uh, Norse mythology because I spent so much time with it. So for our fans, if they'd be interested in that, what do all the other world mythologies, how do they kind of look like similar, but then also different from Norse mythology? Um, if you want to see more of that, certainly let me know. Because partly I feel like it's, you know, it's my thing that I don't know if our, our fans that are here for the Norse mythology, they may not be here for uh, uh, Egyptian and Greek and Celtic. But um, I was saying that the Celtic and the Norse are kind of close enough and those cultures probably communicated. But yeah, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I was going to say, like, I think Celtic or like Egyptian mythology would be super cool, but uh, that's that's a conversation for a later date. But anyway, so David, what do you think? Should we get into the episode? Let's get into it. Yeah, I have some thoughts. Awesome. So this is our first episode in our series on Ragnarok. I had thought a bit on how we wanted to convey the story of Ragnarok. However, David and I thought the best idea was to do this first introduction, um, as in this episode, on the events that lead up to Ragnarok. Then in following episodes, discuss the fates of the specific players in the battle while rehashing the previous stories that we had told on those characters as well. So like Loki plays a part in Ragnarok. So let's go ahead and go back into his story arc. Thor, Odin, the same thing. So like we're going to have like these short instances where we discuss the actual gods and or villains, the giants in their role in Ragnarok, and then go back to like what we've discussed about them on this podcast so far. Um, so anyway, speaking of Loki, he has recently been tied up. And this is something that we discussed in the, one of the last episodes of season two. He is poisoned by the Aesir after he drunkenly insulted all of the gods at Aegir's banquet, and after he orchestrated the death of the pride of the Aesir, the beautiful Balder. So keep in mind that this could have taken place after the gods routinely threatens Loki with physical harm, and also after they banish two of his children from the realm, his children being Hel and Jormungandr, while also chaining up another child of Loki, Fenrir. You'll see here, like, Loki and the gods had this rising tension between each other where Loki would do something stupid, the gods would threaten him. They continued threatening him, excuse me. Loki eventually had children that the gods fucked over, Loki then orchestrates the death of Boulder, and then he insults all the gods at Aegir's feast. When they did chain up, when they did fuck over Loki's children, the gods did this to try and prevent Ragnarok, as Loki's children were fated to start it. But in doing so, these actions caused it to happen, or they sped up the process. Uh, David, does that make sense? How did I do there? Yeah, and that the uh, 
every other version I read, they're like, oh, Loki's so awful. He's the bane of the gods' existence. He ruins everything and he starts Ragnarok. They never talk about that detail that we really explored where they're really torturing Fenrir kind of needlessly, right? They're they're torturing Loki's child and then everything gets a lot worse, right? So it really matters what order you read all the myths and things like that. But until you spend the time like we do, I never see anyone be like, you know, no one ever defends Loki. No one's ever like, oh, Loki's the bad guy, but you know, you probably should know this thing about why he's so upset, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and it's like also, and one thing I didn't miss, I, I didn't mention just now is like Loki, after the gods threatened him, he eventually gets impregnated by a horse, um, and it's like I, I know you and I've, I've had the discussion of whether or not it was technically rape because he um, disguised himself as a female horse because he was threatened by the Aesir, and then he gets, yeah, impregnated by this other horse. But anyway, so Loki obviously had a part to play in the lead up to Ragnarok and as did his children, but how much of Ragnarok started because of the Aesir's actions toward children, um, excuse me, towards Loki and his children. And I know we've had multiple discussions on like the meaning of fate behind all this. Like was Loki and his children fated to start Ragnarok or was the Aesir's actions what started Ragnarok? So it's, or it could be a little bit of both. But anyways, before we get started into the into Gilfoganine, David, did you have something? And just one other thing that I uh, sure. noticed here that I, I might not remember at the end, but as we're mentioning the the death of the pride of the Aesir, right? The death of Baldur. And I'm always looking for what's the psychological meaning of this. Just as you said that to me now, it really strikes me, right? That there's these things that are happening and changing and that you needed the death of pride. You needed the death of your ego, right? So what does Baldur represent, right? He's, it's sort of something... Maybe it's that. That's right where I'm noticing right now, that that's an important step. And then things get really ugly and chaotic after you kill your pride and your ego. So you're, so Balder is ego death? It's something. There's many things that are probably, right? But yeah, <laughs> he's, he's a death of your ideal, right? That you think, oh, I can be perfect yeah. in everything. I'm going to do I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what I was supposed to do, what everybody told me I was supposed to do, right? And then, no, sure. you're not, right? That, that needs to die. And, yeah, uh, and there's also this perception of the Aesir. Like, they look at Boulder and say, he's the next, like, beacon of light for our tribe. Like, when Odin is, uh, like, I know they don't they don't necessarily age physically because of Edun's apples, but, like, let's say, hypothetically, the gods just continually get older and older as far as, at least, their, their wisdom. And eventually, they have somebody younger named, like, Boulder that comes in, and he's the new, like, uh, king of the Aesir, I should say. But, yeah. like he dies and this whole idea of what you're supposed to be dies. And like, I think that kind of like has some relevance to what I understand to be the ego death. Yeah. But anyway, this is not an episode about Boulder, not yet. Um, so we can go ahead and get into this. Uh, so this, uh, for this story on Ragnarok, we're primarily going to use uh, Gilfaganine from the Proceta written by Snorri Sturluson. The last chapter that we did, or the last episode that we did on Gilfaganine detailed Loki's capture and his torture, and that was chapter 50 of Gilfaganine. The beginning of Ragnarok is detailed in chapter 51. So to get started, at the end of chapter 50, when Loki gets chained up by the Aesir, and he um, has this poison dripping on him until Ragnarok, the last line of that chapter says, he will lie bound there until Ragnarok. So chapter 51, the next chapter details with King Gilfi, who is disguised as Gangleri, asking High Justice High and Third, who we like to call the Holy Trio or the Holy Trinity of the Norse gods about Ragnarok. Something that struck me there, because before we talked about 
the three parts of Odin being kind of like the Trinity. And it's like, oh, is this uh, Snorri being a Christian implanting some ideas? But it's actually a very old idea to have a three-faced god. So in the, as I was looking at some Celtic mythology things, that Lug is kind of one of their guys, kind of like Odin, and he has three faces. Um, that also, as I was Google searching all this, that, and I forgot this part, that the Egyptian version of Mercury, before there was the Greek Mercury, that he has three faces, the Egyptian version. In the Greeks, they had Hecate, who was the goddess of the underworld, kind of like Hell or Hela. She has three faces, right? So what all of this means, but it's related to the gods that travel to the underworld uh, have three faces. So it's it's not just the Christian trinity. It's one new thing yeah. I've learned. Like, yeah. I, I think Hell technically has two, but I'm sure there's like some symbolism there for three. She has the split face, uh, Hela in, for the Nordic. Yeah. But yeah, the, yeah. The Greek version has three. Yeah. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And here we have the three fates. Yeah. So. Yeah, the Norns. When Gangleri asks the Holy Trinity about Ragnarok, high answers. And he says that in the lead up to Ragnarok, first there's going to be a winter called Fimbulvetter, which means extreme winter. And he says, and by the way, like when I do quote this version, it's a Jesse Bayek's translation of the Prosetta. And he says, snow will drive in from all directions. The cold will be severe and the winds will be fierce. The sun will be of no use. Three of these winters will come with no summer to separate them. However, the three winters prior would have had many battles taking place. A time of war to prelude Ragnarok driven by greed with brothers slain brothers. This spawns the collapse of kinship. And right here, Snorri quotes a stanza from what he calls Siebel's prophecy, which is actually Voluspot. I included a quote here from uh, Jackson Crawford's translation, where he says, Brothers will fight one another and kill one another. Cousins will break peace with one another. The world will be a hard place to live in. It will be an age of adultery, an age of the axe, an age of the sword, an age of storms, an age of wolves. Shields will be cloven. Before the world sinks in the sea, there will be no man left who is true to another. And uh, I wanted to make a note here, and the reason why I read Crawford's translation of the Poetic Edda from Bolaspa and not Jesse Biox is because I noticed that before the world sinks in the sea, and like I think that kind of like is funny right now because you see like these ominous forebodings of Ragnarok and things you'll see in today's world, but this reminds me of global warming. Oh yeah, and the uh, what was the movie title where the uh, uh, polar ice caps are melting and then the rest of the world freezes? Uh, sure. <laughs> bullet train. I don't know. No, no, it was something. I think it was something earlier before that. But in any case, it was. Uh, well, actually, it was a little. The day before, the day after tomorrow. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. In any case, though, I always, I always think about that whenever it's uh, snowing and cold out, that the, the ice caps are melting and they're coming down here to Albuquerque. Uh, yeah, yeah. Albuquerque, you're going to be fine. You're like what, five thousand feet above sea level. Yeah, we we're, we probably won't uh, sink, but we're going to get cold, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, no, it, as we read through this, that if if you know the book of Revelations, and I didn't know the book of Revelations very well, so I read it this week to make sure I was prepared. There's a lot of parallels, right? and it's not to say that Snorri is taking the book of Revelations and making it, you know, which was written, I don't know, the year 100 or somewhere way back, that uh, the Norse had a similar kind of story. So does he bring in some things that sound a little bit, you know, a book of Revelation-like, but certain things here are kind of very Viking and, you know, Nordic specific, so... 
Well, yeah. And like, first of all, I appreciate that you read Revelations because I was actually raised, you know, strict, <laughs> strict Catholic, and I couldn't tell you anything about it. I just know that there's supposed to be a bunch of disasters before the end of the yeah. world. Um, it's a weird, it's a weird, like acid dream. It's a very weird book, man. <laughs> I'll talk yeah, about it. I, I kind of want to read it now. Um, yeah. but, like since Snorri Sturluson is a Christian, if he's like writing, um, this story about Ragnarok, you know, like why not just take themes from a religion that he actually practices if he was making the, this up? Like uh, we know in like Gilfagany in chapter 51, as we just mentioned, he's taken themes from Voluspa, which is a poem that was written, written way before his time, but there may have been Christian Christian themes there because Christianity was like well, pra- like it was like very pra- well practiced over all of Europe. So like, there's probably there's definitely some overlap there, at least with where these stories came to fruition, if that makes sense. So it says then that the wolf will then swallow the sun, the other wolf will catch the moon, and then the stars will disappear. And so we don't believe that this is Fenrir, but actually two wolves that we haven't discussed when we dis- we actually haven't discussed this yet, even when we discuss the creation of the universe. So the story of how the sun and the moon are in the sky. There's a wolf named Skull, and then there's a wolf named Hati. So in chapter 12 of Gilfaganine, you find out, this is when Snorri is discussing the creation of the cosmos. You find out that the sun moves across the sky because it's being chased by a wolf named Skull. It is foretold that he will eventually catch her, her being the sun, like, like now at Ragnarok. The other wolf, Hati Hradvitnison, runs in front of the sun, but he is trying to catch the moon. So there's also a couple of stanzas in Voluspa that also discuss this. It also states that a kin of the wolves named Managarm, we previously discussed a wolf or dog named Garm, and we did discuss that this potentially could be Fenrir, will swallow the moon. So Garm slash Fenrir could also be Hati. But when Garm, excuse me, Managarm catches the moon, he splatters so much blood across the heavens that the sun then loses its brightness. Because I, think, I think we talked about it real briefly in one episode. We were just talking about like where, where are all the wolf myths, right? The other these, this image of wolves keeps coming back, and it's interesting because we haven't really seen it in the myths, but I see it a lot in heathenry books, books that talk about the the you know the Norse pagan spirituality, associating wolves with Odin. And as I'm trying to remember, it maybe is somewhat actually, they really associate like the German Wotan with being more of the hunter and having wolves that are his hunting uh, companions. Goes back again to me and the Odin and Loki kind of parallel, right? That there's a very sure. dark side of Odin that is more associated with like a catastrophe and um, the eclipse and the eclipse being a premonition of end times and things like that, right? That That's got a little to do with Odin, but also clearly the child of Loki, right? So it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So then Snorri Sturluson says that the earth will then shake, including the mountains and trees will loosen from the ground. All fetters and bonds will then break and Fenrir will break free. As we discussed, Fenrir being one of the sons of Loki, he was tricked by the Aesir. He was trying to play this game with them. They trick him. They bind him with this this, uh, chain that can't be broken. And then they stick a sword in his mouth. So his mouth is always open. It was a, a silly piece of string, right? The, the first ones were these yeah. big chains and then a bigger chain. And he's like, ha, huh, I could break out of those chains. And then they're like, now don't you want to get bound with this, just this little string? And he's like, nope, this feels like magic. This feels like a trick. 
which is why Tier has to risk his hand, right? But uh, yeah, I think this. I think that I think the wire or whatever it was is called Gleipnir, but I could be wrong. Yeah, something of that of that nature. They had to use magic, but they couldn't naturally bind him. It was too powerful, and now the magic is falling apart. So there's something without me getting into too much of a tangent on magic that it was not, you know, in accordance with nature is my stoic phrasing. But uh, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so Fenrir has joined the fray. So at this point, the sea will then surge onto the land, including the world serpent Jormungandr. Then the ship Nagelfar will loosen from its moorings. Nagelfar is made from the nails of dead men, which sounds very appetizing and just lovely. So I will say, trim your nails, everyone, if you're going to die. And David notes, don't let the uh, don't let the witches steal your fingernails. They might do something with them. So. Yeah. So if you if you're if you're trying to prevent Ragnarok, everybody, not only clip your fingernails, but also burn them. I don't know though. That might send them to hell quicker. I'm not sure how you're supposed to properly dispose of them. This is an important (laughs) issue. Yes, this is why we need a this is why we need a professor on our podcast. How how was the nail ship actually created? And how does the creator of the ship get the nails? But anyway, maybe you should just let your nails grow forever. But then when you die, they have more nails. So I don't know. It's a whole thing. Like we could stay up all night, but. I don't know what the image means. Yeah. I'm not even going to speculate on this one other than pieces of dead people. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Nagofar, the ship that's made by dead men's nails, will enter the land via the flooding sea. So the same route that Jormungandr took. The ship is captained by a giant named Krim. And uh, David, I know I put a note here. Have we seen Hrim before? And you made a note about Hymir. Yeah, it's sort of almost a rearranging of, of Hymir, but that's the best I can recall. So, yeah, who is? And then Thrym is another one, T-H-R. Yeah, there's yeah. Thrymheim. Um, yeah. Hymskida is like one of the stories. I think him is like the, the giant that was with Thor on a, the fishing episode of the from the Poetic Edda yeah. version. I think it was like Hrim or Thim, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's that guy. But that's why I really would like to have a, yeah, someone that's really an expert to see what's the, what's the best academic speculation of are the writers here, you know, confusing names and mixing them up and not knowing how to spell and things like that? Or is it just that all the, the family of giants, they'd have similar names, all their names kind of rhyme. You know, that would make sense too. And they're all the sons of a similar ancestor. Yeah. So. And also Maybe. since it's Hrim, it could also be Hrimir. So yeah. it is kind of similar to Hymir, but like it kind of also just seems like it's a similar, it's like a giant name. It's just like a, yeah. if you, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's very similar to just being a name that you consistently see with the giants. So yeah, the last star is often silent. So you do have to consider uh, ignoring that one. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. So at this point, it actually goes back to Fenrir. Fenrir's mouth is open so wide. His upper jaw reaches the heavens and his lower jaw hits the earth. Flames shoot out, of, shoot out of his eyes and nostrils, which looks pretty badass. Um, so he obviously is pretty pissed off at being chained up by the Aesir. And keep in mind that they did put a sword in his mouth, as I mentioned earlier, forcing his jaws to remain open. So I'm wondering how much that action of putting the sword in his mouth made his like jaws look more monstrous. And made things worse, maybe, right? I, I haven't given that part too much thought yet, but as my little bit of psychological explanation in here just to take that image of this wolf's mouth that reaches up to the heavens, right? That he's clearly grown stronger, right? Like he was, he was pretty terrifying before, but it's gotten worse. And yeah. the idea of like, what is, what are the emotions of 
hate and rage and things that, and it builds up stronger and stronger the longer you blank, right? Leave it in isolation. Don't look at it. Ignore it. One of my episodes, one of my episodes, I think I've mentioned something about with the shadow and leaving resentment sitting in a dark closet. And um, yes, is that what happened to Fenrir here, right? So it's connecting. Yeah. Vague ideas for me. built this. Yeah. Very, very poetic ideas, right? It's hard to, yeah, um, fully explain it. But then once you, once you know it, then you kind of know what it's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so then it goes back to Jormungandr and it says that Jormungandr spits out so much venom that it spatters everywhere into the air and the sea. And then he stands next to his brother Fenrir. So two of the children of Loki teaming up for battle. Right. And just as it's, you know, confirming what I'm thinking here with that, you know, like, you know, for a person to be venomous, right. is like the word vitriol and contempt and all these ideas, right. That is the, the expression of what's the, the wolf building up its power basically. Yeah. Yeah. And then at this point, the sky splits apart and then enter the sons of Muspel. Um, again, Muspel being one of the quote nine worlds and I'm doing quote, cause there's not actually a list of nine worlds, but we do think that Muspel or Muspelheim is one of them. The, the and, fiery underworld, right? Yes. The fiery underworld. Um, so again, like going back to our creation myth episode, Muspel and Niflheim were the two worlds that were there. There was this dawning void, um, called Ganunga Gap. And then Muspelheim and Niflheim just started spreading. The ice and the fire met, and that created life. And Surtur, the fire god or the fire giant, was always on Muspel. So he was somehow there before like the primordial uh, creation of everything. At least we think that's the case. But anyway, he leads the sons of Muspel through this split in the sky, and he comes in with his flaming sword. So they enter through Bifrost and they break it. The sons of Muspel reach the plane called Vigrid, which means battle plane. And he and his army meet Fenrir and Jormungandr. Then Loki arrives. So Loki's chains were also broke. He arrives along with Hrim, the captain of Nagalfar, the nail ship. The frost giants then show up along with Hell's own, Loki's daughter, so I guess Hell's army is there. So at this point, all of Loki's children are there. And then the army assembles in the field Vingrid, quote, lies a hundred leagues in each direction. I'm just thinking of that part of um, where do all the dead go, right? So now the, the dead who die in valorous combat, right, go to Odin, but maybe half go to Freya, right? And then people who die of accidents and old age and drowning and everything else go yeah. to Hela, right? So she's got a large army of uh, not the greatest of warriors of, you know, or yeah, that, that Odin claims. But Yeah, there's strength in numbers though. And they also got the Sons of Muspel there um, and along with like the Frost Giants and everything. So it's a, it's a rather large army of people that absolutely hate the gods. So on the Aesir's end, when Hemdal sees what's going on, he blows Gallarhorn with all of his strength to awaken the gods for battle. The gods then hold courts and Odin then rides to Mimir's well to seek his counsel. So, that's and I I, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. There about what um what kind of counsel he received, or we don't we don't get that. It, it doesn't. Um, I I made a joke here in our document about how maybe it's like uh, Tony Stark asking Doctor Strange um, about the possible endings to Avengers: Infinity War, and I almost didn't want to say that because I'm sure you haven't seen the movie, David. I don't know if I've seen that. Was it the first Doctor Strange or the second? <laughs> David, come on. It's the fourth Avengers movie. 
Um, it's yeah, it's so pretty much the Avengers are getting their asses kicked, and Doctor Strange has the ability to look in the future and see all potential outcomes. And yep. out of like all the billions and billions of outcomes that are going to happen, it they all involve the Avengers losing except for one. And so Doctor Strange, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, holds up his finger to say it's one opportunity. And then Tony Stark sees this and they figure it out eventually. Um, but my guess is that Tony Stark looking to Benedict Cumberbatch for this wisdom is similar to Odin going to Mimir to pretty much say, is there a way out of this? Is there a way that we can potentially come to victory or do we just have to go out in a blaze of glory? And it's clearly a very uh, archetypal image because I'm still stuck back in uh, 1997 watching uh, David the King. But in that, the King Saul, he can't make a move without consulting Leonard Nimoy that he needs to talk to his seer who has a connection with God that the King Saul doesn't have the connection himself. So he doesn't know the right thing to do in battle. He's got to go ask his uh, seer. So I think Mimir is played by Leonard Nimoy now too. Yes. That, let's just say that that's going to be accurate. And David, like you you just like ruined our podcast because everyone's going to come and try to kill me because I was forced to explain the ending of infinity war in one minute. And I did a horrible job. of it. So. I'm, I'm going to get Disney plus and I'm going to start watching these things though. That is one of my yeah, New Year's resolutions. It's it, like they're, they're cheesy movies, but some of them are very good, but the mo- the creators know that they're cheesy and that makes it okay. When, when, when you look every other week and you see, Oh, this is the week that between two Ravens didn't post an episode. Just remember that David's probably watching a uh, catching up on Avengers or uh, the Marvel movies. On Disney. Plus. There we go. But anyway, Odin's going to Mimir, his uncle Mimir, because he knows that if there is a way out of this, Mimir has it. So <laughs> Between Two Ravens says that Mimir is Benedict Cumberbatch playing Doctor Strange. But one thing I also wanted to make a note here, and, and we also made a note about this in an earlier episode, I believe when we discussed either Mimir or Hemdall, or both of them, Hemdall's horn that he blows when Ragnarok happens is Galarhorn, which we just mentioned. But it's also the horn that Mimir drinks from from his well to gain this wisdom and of course Galarhorn could just be like a uh, description of different types of horns so it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same horn because obviously one is uh, a cup pretty much and another one is like what you blow out of but I just wanted to make that connection there with the Galarhorn. That I actually really appreciate that you note that part because it takes me back to uh, one of my one of my jokes so that your uh, your Heimdall is the region of your brain that um, notices things right your your senses and alert vigilant attention so again going back to my psychological analysis of the myths right that there's something about this paying attention and finding wisdom they they link these two things together right so as these things are getting away from you right the the, the armies of Muspel are building there's something you need to pay attention to some kind of wisdom. And counsel you need, right? That's just where my yep. mind is right now. But yeah. No, definitely. So anyway, at this point, like the armies are assembling. Another another Avengers nod. And then the world tree Yggdrasil shakes. And all of the gods and men are then with fear. The gods in the Einarhar then dress for battle in advance. Odin is the one leading them. So I think that is where we're going to end the nor- the story portion of this episode. It's shit's about to hit the fan. So David, what are your thoughts? So th- there's a, a couple things, right? I've sort of given some of the analysis we go through of what Ragnarok might represent. I think one of our previous discussions was that idea, you know, is it is it Snorri being a Christian, this idea that there's going to be a rebirth after, or was that always the case, right? And that's 
it's an interesting question, right? Cause there's a lot of old mythologies or, you know, look to like a Hindu traditions. And there's a few things throughout. If you look at all our episodes where we've mentioned that maybe some of the ideas of the gods actually did um, connect to some Hindu ideas. You go far enough back maybe, mm-hmm. but that, that idea of reincarnation rebirth, right. That, that it's a cycle. I think I even said that's the, uh, the stoic cosmology of the earth is that it's one big fiery explosion. It expands, it expands, and then it all contracts into the big crunch. And then it all happens again. Right. And they somehow knew this, you know, 500 BC, uh, or they intuited this theory, having no idea about the big bang and the big crunch or any of that. And then to take that from, we're explaining the universe to we're explaining our own mind and how we change and transform and are reborn. Right. That's a really important idea in the hero's journey in you know, Jung's idea of individuation, that things that need to die, things you need to let go of to find something better, more true, however you are going to word it. So I, th- I think everything we're seeing here kind of fits toward that. And it's the idea, you know, the people writing it, they, they probably didn't think about the things Carl Jung thought about, right? They didn't know what they were doing, but it was, it meant a lot to them, right? It was some way they were sorting out their psychology, just like modern times when I write it, write down my dreams and I'm trying to make sense of something. What are they telling me, right? That um, certainly how I take this, this intro and I don't know where we're going with it. So that's, as I look to, uh, the book of revelations, it really makes me wonder where these two are going to kind of line up in parallel. But mm-hmm. what are your thoughts, John? What do you think of this? Uh, is it the first half or first third of, uh, Ragnarok? So this is probably about half of it. The rest of it is, I mean, you'll see, and we don't have to include this, but the rest of it is like kind of just what happens to the individual gods during the battle. That there, there are interesting, especially when you look to the Greek mythology, the idea of, well, and there's a lot in, yeah, in the Norse too, right? Which of the gods, the gods and goddesses pair up, right? Which ones go well with each other, right? Which ones are the children of each other? And that idea is that somehow kind of a psychological theory. Uh, maybe it holds up or maybe it doesn't, right? As we see which one of them, yeah. So now I'm trying to explain... A little bit. Basically, it's a whole bunch of ideas that I built up over the break, right? And which ones are actually relevant and needed to talk about. So this idea of, of what is the king of, reading Robert Moore or listening to a, a lecture by him, and he talks about that you need an image of the king within yourself. So it's kind of like finding the king within. And it's not to become, you know, a, a, a narcissist or a sociopath that you think, well, I'm the king and everyone needs to do what I say, right? It's this idea, what's a good king, right? What did the good king actually look like? That we maybe we haven't seen that for a long time right? The, here and there in history, you'd see it. Marcus Aurelius being the, the philosopher king, that he cared about philosophy and he didn't just do whatever he felt like doing, but he, he thought about it very carefully, and how, what, how he was going to, the responsibility that comes with that power. Not just, I get to have all the power, but that really it's a lot of weight to put on your shoulders to be the king. And that that's a thing in society, people are afraid of their power because too often it becomes having power over somebody else or or you've, you've experienced having somebody else having power over you and you didn't care for that. So you don't want anybody else to feel that way. But are we supposed to have power? Are we supposed to run away from our power or are we supposed to learn to use it responsibly? Right. And this is, you know, uh, there's a good Spider-Man quote that goes with that and I can't, I can't get it right. <laughs> great power comes great responsibility. Something like that. Yeah. I don't know if that was Spider-Man. It might've been though. I think so, but I can't remember. So mostly that's just my way of explaining why I immediately went right to, I need to read book of revelations with this because the idea of you need images of the king, and it's not about going back to Christianity, you need to be a Christian or you need to um, worship the Christian God. Carl Jung very strongly believed in kind of the, the Gnostic stuff where there's, there is a king, father, God, but there's also the mother goddess and that Christ is involved in all this, but it's all very uh, pagan and pantheistic. And that's what some Christians believed before 
So that's before the uh, the Catholic Church kind of Christianized the, the rest of the Christians and said, there's only one answer. Some of their stuff was very kind of pagan sounding and uh, yeah. looked at the darkness of the gods and goddesses and even Christ having a dark shadow side and all of this. So anyways, that's just my tangent of why is uh, reading the book of Revelations relevant, I guess. But what are your thoughts, Sean, on my, my ramblings about the king? I mean, I'm sure I certainly want to read the Revel- like the book of Revelations, yeah. but like I, I'm wondering you he mentioned the you keep mentioning the king in this story. So like I'm wondering like how much of this ties into Odin, right? Because right. Odin, you know, he's been like trying so hard to prevent this ever since he figured it out and like his actions kind of like dictated what happened. Right. And so like I, I again like maybe I should have read Revelations for uh this this episode, but like I'm wondering like how much of what Odin did to speed up Ragnarok like plays into what happened with revelation. Like did he speed up this like destruction that happened on the world? Like the mountain shaking and just like winter, like summer being non-existent, like the sky opening up and things like that. Yeah. It's interesting because in in revelations, the, you know, spoiler alert, right. That, that God and the forces of good win, but at a very high cost and almost everything else is destroyed. Um, and that's the way it was always going to be, kind of, right? That, that Odin is is so clinging to things. This is me, me and by both the the Buddhist and the mindfulness and the Stoic stuff, right? The, he's, his desires and his clinging, and he can't let go of, and he can't accept fate. That, you know, the last scene we left with, right, is Odin trying to overcome his fear and preparing for battle. And then I think we kind of know that he's he's not necessarily going to win, right? Yeah, and I had another thought, like, because we mentioned, like, global warming earlier. Like, global warming, let's, like, man-made. It's something that like humans, like humans need to drive, right? They they want this better technology to like get around, so they created it, and it's escalating, you know, um, climate change, right? So then, let's look at something like AI. Like AI is being used to make our lives easier, and so let's say one day the robots come to life and they they destroy us. Like both of those things could be considered like Ragnarok, right? And it's a very interesting question you said there, right? That these things make our life easier. And then the question, well, is that a good thing, right? That we're, we're feeling like, oh, that's a good thing. We want to make our lives easier. There's a lot of things that would say, no, actually to, to work hard and discipline and uh, yeah, moderation, right? All these things, those, those are the good things. Making your life easier is not a good thing. That's a sin. And then, oh, it has bad <laughs> consequences. Big surprise, right? Yeah. So, and like Odin, uh, you know, or the Aesir trying to like chain up uh, Fenrir, like that's, that makes your life easier for now. Because you don't have to worry about them, yeah. And, and I and it really does. As we try to, meet, I try to tie it back into some psychological things, right? That that what is the true self that Carl Jung talks about? Right? Is the idea is actually finding a, an idea of wholeness, your your whole self, you, you getting to be a full person. Part of that is allowing Fenrir, but what's the right relationship with it? Right? It's not that you are Fenrir and you're a wolf on, on a chain and you're biting people, right? It's but you need a relationship to it whatever it is, a certain, a certain, a right amount of distance. It's the same idea with the king. You, you don't want to be the king or convince yourself you're the king, but you need to have the right distance, you know, to not pretend it's not there, to not pretend that you are it. Uh, it's the same thing for all the archetypes, even Fenrir, I think. So that yeah. idea that, yeah, pushing it away leads to more Ragnarok, right? <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that seems true to me. And um, I don't know, one of my thoughts, I almost actually want to read a whole section of Revelation, but I'll just give you my cliff notes. Because it was it was about a year ago, as something where I started reading about Norse mythology. The first time I read about Ragnarok, and I'm like, and they they related it to the Book of Revelations, and I was like, I never read Book of Revelations, so I read the first like book or two, 
And there's this scene that I could never get out of my um, mind, really, where it's it's Christ and he comes back, but he has flames in his eyes, kind of like Fenrir, actually, now as we're talking about it. And he has a sword coming out of his mouth that's like, I don't know, 70 feet long or something. And, he, you know, he's like 100 feet tall and he's got a sword, you know, t- coming out of his mouth. And it's like he moves his head and he's going to you know, cut people in half with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's got these stars he's holding on to and there's lamps and there's, you know, all this numerology and certain numbers. And I'm like, this is the weirdest dream, right? If you ask, like, you know, is, is the Bible true? And it's, it's, I'm not trying to make light of the Bible, right? But you wait, this is a dream that you had. No, this is this is what the Book of Revelation says. <laughs> but wait, ever what? Since I, yeah, ever since I read it, I'm like, this is the craziest thing I've ever read. And it's not <laughs> to minimize Godzilla, it. Yeah. As, as people question, like, is is the Bible true? Right? It's, there, I, I really believe there was some seer, some prophet who had a dream, and all of this came to him in his dream. Right? And it is the weirdest dream you've ever seen. What does all of it mean? You know, is it going to happen in 500 years? Right? I mean, that's yeah. Those are different questions, but that. And it's all there in the Bible. And this is how they decided to end the Bible. And there's lots of weird books they left out of the Bible that were written in these early you know, times. Um, but they kept this one because there's something, you know, they, they needed a good ending, right? I don't know. Yeah, why did they keep it as when the, there's ones they could have dropped? But, and that, the, so the, the framework kind of goes back to, you know, in the Norse mythology when they're like, we're having a party and, and the gods came over to Aegir's Hall and they're a bunch of people. And there's this poet who wants to ask them questions. And that's our framing, right? That in this one, it's it's a prophecy that says how the seven churches, so basically um, Christ and his 12 apostles and uh, seven of them founded churches that were at least surviving at this point. Um, so they're very legitimate churches because they're founded by you know all of the followers, the actual followers of Christ. But they're doing things that are wrong. They're having sexual immorality. They're, they're doing pagan sacrifices and then eating part of the animal that was sacrificed. They're uh, doing these things they're not supposed to. So he is like this wild vision of Christ has seven lamps. There are seven messages for the seven churches is the, the framework. And he's like, you need to stop doing this and you need to stop doing this and you need to stop doing this. And then it's kind of like, cause if you do, then you'll be the people saved. And if you don't, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> and there's these things where there's like 24 gods or some kind of beings sitting on thrones surrounding God himself. There's these, a, a lion and an eagle and an ox but they're all, they all have six wings and they have eyes covering them everywhere. And it's just all, it's much weirder than Ragnarok. Like it really is, you know, if you like mythology and, and stuff, you should really go check out book of revelations. Um, and, and then there's these things with, you know, the, it, it's interesting because all these things that you hear of in our society that, that come out of here, you know, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, the seven seals of a scroll that there's, so it's interesting. First there's um, Hades, the Greek Hades, and that's a different guy they explain than Satan. And Satan is different than these two beasts that come out of the sea that have all these wild just kind of characteristics, really a lot like Jormungandr and Fenrir, but they're much weirder. They have, you know, like all these appendages, wings, just weird things going on. And so the mark of the beast, it's not that Satan is the beast, it's these beasts. And it's just, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it kind of with that part and I'll yeah. probably come back to Book of Revelations next time. And I'll read but, it for next episode as well. Yeah, but it, it, it's all these things where I'm like, oh, I've heard of that. You know, I hear people talk about this thing, right? And it's uh, very rarely, you know, I, I don't think the church encourages people necessarily to read the book of Revelations that often. I think, you know, that I grew up in the church, modern Protestants are kind of like, I don't think they take that part too seriously. I mean, some of the evangelicals do, but many churches are kind of like, you know, we like all these things Jesus was saying about 
how to live your life and, you know, turn over the, the money lenders table and uh, you have to sacrifice and be kind to the, um, you know, the meek will inherit the earth, but I don't think they <laughs> really want you to read book of revelations. So yeah, just, uh, it's a buffet, just pick and choose what you want from the Bible. <laughs> but again, that it was, it was a, a vision that a prophet had and what does it mean? Right. That's, that is someone's job to make sense of. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's very insane. Like, is there, there definitely are some like uh, consistencies with this and Ragnarok from the pro yeah. and, uh, Boluspot from the poetic era. So, and, and that's again where I would I would love to really actually yeah, talk to some more academics. Maybe we'll make a point to reach out to some because is you know the Book of Revelations was written at least my off the top of my head I would say somewhere around like the year one hundred or two hundred, you know, thousand years before this Norse stuff is written down, right? So was it that you know Snorri and the, the Christian tradition brought it up there, or had these ideas already just spread all over the place before this, and then they all got taken a little bit of a different way, or is it really just the collective unconscious that if you, you know, we sent people to Mars and uh, didn't, they didn't, uh, you know, they lost all record of our recorded history. Would they start dreaming these dreams too? Right. That's, that's the real question. We can't test without um, isolating a bunch of people somewhere without culture. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that would be the real question. So yeah. The, re- reading the book of revelations will, uh, it'll give you some weird dreams too. If you read it before bed. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> Any, any anything else, Sean? What are your yeah? As you said, like there's definitely some parallels, right? We're already seeing the other two creatures coming out. Yeah, and, um, yeah, not not too much. I mean, I think uh, it's. I think I'm glad that we ended the uh, this. I guess this episode on this like on like with where we did on Gilfagani in chapter 51, just because like you see this like destruction happening, and like you see like the morality of men falling. You see the destruction of the world happening. And like you see this like sense of anxiety and fear just like entering every being. Meanwhile, like the sons of Loki, the sons of Muspel and Surtur are arriving to wreck shit. So like the end of times is near. Um, and so like it's gonna be interesting to see like what happens with the individual players in the future episodes. I definitely want to get back into the, the routine of putting out these episodes because I really enjoy you know, probably everybody can tell I get excited reading about Book of Revelations and some of these things. So <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You have a good night, okay? Yeah, you too. Thank you, and uh, thank you everybody for listening. Have a great night. Thank you for listening to Between Two Ravens. If you've been enjoying our show, please write a five-star review on iTunes to help spread our podcast to a wider audience. See the show notes below for links to follow us on social media. Our podcast is part of the Walled Garden Podcast Network. The Walled Garden Philosophical Society is committed to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever it might be found. Visit thewalledgarden.com to learn more.